Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Eating Bears, Notes on How to Go About It. The talk was given by Jocelyn Del Rio on October 29th, 2022, via Zoom. Jocelyn is a spiritual student, artist, therapist, mother, gardener, and builder, whose main interest in life is growth, development, evolution, observing in awe, and participating in the cyclical nature of life. In this talk, Jocelyn speaks about the process of transformation, which requires that we eat our bears, our emotions and all that threatens us, by learning to relate with them. She draws on material from many sources, including Gabor Mate, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Joseph Campbell, Rumi, Rudy, Rollo May, Robert Svoboda, Carl Jung, the Buddha, Leonard Cohn, and her spiritual teacher, Lee Lozowick, who wrote stanzas of poetry to his teacher, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar. Early in the discussion, she describes her response to one of her spiritual community celebrations that she attended, where a roast pig was served. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Jocelyn Del Rio. Thank you all for this opportunity to be here and talk about eating bears from a very, very organic down to earth, not the esoteric position. And in a movie, a galactic movie, one of the heroes asks the other one, he says, is this possible? And the other one answers, it's necessary. So I think eating the bears that come around us are necessary. And looking into that, what creation is designed life to do is precisely that transformation. Necessity, possibility, and action in terms of processes and of transformation at many levels are what living things are designed by creation to do. We are embodied souls on earth to experience, learn, develop. And we do this through the body, through our environment, and through the laws of creation. So there's a blueprint for lawful transformation in everything from molecules to cells to the planets to everything. Everything is designed to be functioning and not be in any way static. It's constant, constant, constant transformation. And the systems, it's like eyes. The creator made eyes on a whole bunch of different things from insects to dinosaurs. And they all work differently. But the system is the same. Eating for breathing for everything is the same as it is for eating metaphorical bears. Okay? We don't know how this system works until we start looking. And, and for me, seeing is one of the things that I keep going back to. I have to look. I have to see if I'm going to achieve this. And so if you look at these systems, they're predictable at the same time subject to pressures and mutations. With study and observation are also foreseeable. And if we can't see them coming, at least we know that they can be expected. And so things are going to roll us over. Nothing is ever that we expected it to be. Life is like moving water. If I don't accept it, get wet, float, and ride the waves, I'll drown. And in this system, everything is a form of food. We consume air, water, the rays of the sun, and the fruits of the earth, which are the four traditional and essential elements within our cells and systems, which are in turn that fifth element, the space. Our internal space is not separate from the space outside of us. Water, air, temperature, movement, seasons, sounds, light, gravity, energies, emotions, thoughts, inspirations, experience, growth, appearance, and disappearance all flow freely within us and beyond us. None of this belongs to us, nor does it define us. The presence or scarcity of these elements are beyond our control, and they nurture us 
and must be cared for and given back, lawfully transformed to sustain and nurture other lives in the loop of reciprocity. Okay, so we have all of this coming and going, coming and going, and we have an obligation to participate in taking all of this in and in what we give out, okay? And the Vietnamese teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, offers what he calls a gatha, a practice point, as a practice when food is served. And he says, in this food, I see clearly the presence of the entire universe supporting my existence. So therefore, what I do is not for me, but for something greater than me. If this is supporting my existence, I have to reciprocate and support that. As an example, at one celebration, going into the tent for dinner, I was shocked to see a large roast pig with an apple in its mouth, potatoes suckling at its belly. And the first thought was a reaction, horror. Whatever happened to the vegetarian thing? I can't, I won't, I shouldn't eat that. No way. Second came the thought. Discipline. Do I have to do this? And then came the response. Remember the law of hospitality. Receive and welcome and consume what you are given with gratitude. The gratitude took the form of honoring the pig for its life and its death. And in my words directed to him and in appreciating the meal. With as much grace as I could muster and said grace so that grace in capitals could come into me and do the rest. It's that difference between the reaction and the response. And then going back to the organic thing, if you look into the science of breathing, it turns out that animal cells evolved through the possibility of taking in oxygen which was the poison that plants threw out. So we are actually consumers of the poison of another entity, of another form. And we're good at it. We're good transformational apparatuses in taking in oxygen, putting out CO2, and the plants in their transformation, they are creating soil from photosynthesis. They are making sugar out of the sun. They're transforming things all the time. And we are hooked into that system and helping out through our breathing. Okay. I come across Lee saying in one of the 108 stances to Yogi Ramsumar Kumar, he says, You are the air that we breathe, giving us life and vitality, without which we would be unable to know you in your beautiful bodily form. So here's this very basic thing of breathing that cells do with this intention of knowing creation in its beautiful bodily form. The whole chain is connected. When I was teaching yoga, I found that most of us hold on to the exhalation, at least a little bit. You know, we don't want to lose it. And that's to do with the amygdala, that reptilian brain that is scared. It knows somewhere unconsciously that the last act of life will be an exhalation. And so it doesn't let it go all the way. It's not this exhalation which I'm going to die on. It's like, let me hold on to a little bit of it. And we have to learn to trust in the process and to exhale fully. Our inhalation is important for that transformation, but the exhalation is the other half of transforming everything. You take in, like the roast pig, And you have to give back. So a full exhalation is important. You can take in more if you're empty. It applies to everything, to thoughts, to emotions, to memories that feed us. But they must be released because otherwise the new can't come in. So that whole system, it works for breath, also works for everything else. For food, we have to digest and get rid of it for emotions, everything that flows through. Human beings are now messing up this whole plant animal system and cutting down too many trees and creating too much CO2 and doing a lot of stuff. And disasters are going on. But creation can take care of its own transformation. If you look at Chernobyl, 
the nuclear meltdown site that was devastated. When people abandoned it, when we get out of our own way, when we get out of the way with all our things that go on, it's taken a couple of years. But you look at Chernobyl now, it's green again. The trees again, there's life again. And the insects, which for a while were all twisted and four-legged instead of six-legged, are all coming back to their original blueprint. And the creation can do it. We just have to get out of the way with all our stuff and let the universe flow through us, not vice versa, okay? And once you're in the body, the system replicates itself. It's like the eyes that every system has for perception. The heart does exactly the same thing. It takes CO2 out of the veins, pushes it in the lungs to go out, takes oxygen and pushes it through again to feed the body. And when it does that, it transfers energy, sensation, and emotion as well. It does the cleaning. It goes into the lymphatic. So these systems are very, very complex. And we just mess them up. (laughs) And water also has multiple functions. Remember that we're receptors of all these things and emitters of all these things. And water is really interesting because we don't contain water. We are water. 70%. Babies more, older people less. But an average of 70% of our body is water. And water has its own interesting ways of working. It also nurtures us with oxygen. It carries out waste. It gives the blood fluidity and the muscles energy, keeps the heart ticking and the brain pulsing. And one thing is that we share it with the universe, like our breath. We don't know where it's coming from. We can't say, this is clean, this is healthy, this is wonderful. This has got a lot of energy coming from who knows where, flowing through us, going out again. And if you study water, water will pick up energies. Water that is blessed will do something different than water that comes from the mind, for instance. There's these invisible energies that come into water, and we have no idea how it's coming into us, no? And then once we're receiving all this stuff, then we also have to see, as we transform it through its energy, what we do with what goes out. So the residue of our digestive process and any animal feces is, this is compost. This is richness. It's not waste. And we use it wrongly. A million things we're doing wrong with what we don't want, don't need. And it's the same with emotions. We dump them all over everybody. (laughs) We dump it all into the atmosphere. You know, we're angry. We're, We're very destructive in that sense. And we neglect to compost it for new growth. We forget that we have an obligation to serve the system, to pay for our existence. Our purpose on earth is not to dominate and control it, but to learn to be human beings. This is a Native American remark. So we need to undertake our responsibility to be with the human part first, and the being will be taken care of by creation once we make the setup. In speaking of waste, one of the principles of Ayurvedic medicine is to never inhibit or prevent natural discharges from the body. Sneezes, vomit, diarrhea, mucus, urine, gas, even tears. They are aids to health and development. We don't like them. We want to pretend they don't exist. We want to pretend that's not me. I didn't do that. <laughs> but if obstructed, don't let the baby have diarrhea. Give it kaopectate or something. And then when you obstruct that, whatever it is, the microbes or food or whatever it is, will then be pushed deeper by the body. The body can't push it out, so it pushes it into the corners, does something with it, and will hide it, and it will be hard to extricate afterwards. And I take it back to emotions or those bears. Those things, we don't let them go. We don't want to say, that's mine, I'm getting rid of it. We push it down, and we're going to have trouble with it later. Toxic thoughts and emotions, painful experiences, childhood and adult traumas act pretty much the same way. 
And these stresses must be discharged without causing more harm. Have any of you experienced liver ailments caused by suppressed anger or lung disorders from suppressed grief? And I was listening to a talk of Gabor Mate. I don't know if he's familiar to you as, as a doctor. He says they have statistically now recorded a much higher incidence of depression, breast cancer, and multiple sclerosis in women than in men. These are the people who suppress more and have more pressures on them. The ratio is even higher when racism and gender bias are present. So there's obviously these things that get suppressed and affect the functioning of the body. And we are bodies who are here to foster our souls. And they used to blame all of this on genetics. It was like my mom's cancer. Everybody freaks out that my mom had cancer and everybody wants me to have all these checkups and things in it. It's the things that you suppress. It's the things that you don't allow to be transformed. You don't allow to flow in and out. It's not the best food. It's not the best activities. And it's not the best way of releasing. And that eventually will get to the bears. Back to food. When I was feeding my premature babies, the quality of the food was really important because it was one ounce of a bottle every three hours. But I realized that the quality of the delivery of how they received that food was just as important as the milk itself. So how do we give food? How do we receive food? Food is a great carrier of a lot of stuff apart from the physical chemical aspect. It nurtures belonging. It nurtures safety. It nurtures growth. It nurtures a lot of stuff. So the quality of how we deliver food, how do you prepare this? What goes into it? And our first response is to the challenge of a life of feeling, because more than the milk, they're waking up to feeling of sensation or instinctual. Breathe, seek the nipple, cry if something goes wrong, focus the eyes to see, listen to what the ears register, sleep and rest, savor warmth or shiver cold. It's all the things that the body is informing. And slowly agency begins to come into the picture, an attempt to grasp, to reach, to turn the head, to imitate the smile on another's face. Slowly, relationship starts to become food. And the stakes of voluntary participation in life begin to rise because the choices of what to take in and what to do become more and more challenging for a child, for a growing person. But as the challenge increases, so do the resources fueled and nurtured by the challenging experiences themselves. From the instinctual system, we grow into a moving one, then the emotional and the intellectual. From a survival system to a conscious one, we evolve by crawls and falls and leaps and founds in an ascending spiral. And by voluntary, I mean taking on all the challenges, the good, the bad, and the boring. So you have this newborn baby who has the breathing, digesting, and feeling systems when it leaves the womb. The first unconscious emotions also awaken, which are equipment installed by creation to be used. They are the desire to live and the fear of not surviving, that duality. That same energy with two different manifestations, okay? And then also created is the bond of relationship. These are lawful feelings. Gifts which links us to the web of life. Because human beings are designed to be in relationship. This is how we survive and thrive. We're not like turtles that get along from the moment of birth. They're born from an egg and they bond and they've never seen their mother in their life. They handle everything. Relationship with others is a necessary part of our blueprint of growth, evolution, and transformation. We receive in relationship and we give. It's a two-way give and take. And that flow is very harmful when painful and when destructive. For instance, they found with infant monkeys, if they deprived them of mother and of other animals, they gave them two chances. There was a fuzzy mother figure and a wire mother figure with a bottle of milk. Most of the little monkeys would die of starvation, cuddled up with a warm, fuzzy one and not with a wire one. Instinctively, they were looking for that. And so starting as an infant and then a a young being and even as an adult, what happens to that body-mind system when they're neglected, when they're orphaned or abused in any degree? 
It can develop a confused and overly immature nervous system, which can fixate on needs, pleasure, a comfort zone, and dependence on one hand, and fear and rage. Okay, that's what we're feeding this little system. Life becomes a condition of dis-ease. This being has less opportunity to process incoming impressions that develop the feelings of trust, confidence, courage, curiosity, care, gratitude, generosity, forgiveness, independence, or love. This is the deformation instead of the transformation. It's always since shown that the kids were not allowed to play with their food, were not allowed to explore what their connection is with it, to experiment, to be curious and creative, they become very picky and uninterested eaters and receivers. I don't know how to handle something strange. I don't know how to deal with this. This is what I'm given to eat, and that's the only thing I can handle. They do not delight in shapes, colors, aromas, textures, and tastes of food, nor in the situations or company which sensorially can be associated with food. What could be a celebration becomes a chore. And we subsequently find that these things not able to explore, experiment, and even savor thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And they are also shut down because they haven't opened up to this. The opposite is of overabundance of food, of stimulation, which produce non-spiritual transformations, but diabetes, heart failure, metabolic disorders, plus entitlement, arrogance, possessiveness, jealousy, paranoia, no generosity, kindness, or compassion, no gratitude, no recognition of the gift of life. It's too much. There's not an appreciation. And that brings on also a tendency to binges, even emotional ones, into addictions. And paradoxically, many of these individuals end up identifying themselves as victims because they feel they were dealt them the cards of constant dissatisfaction and relationships when they are either exploited or abandoned. It's a very slippery slope. You have too much and the conclusions, we always said draw no conclusions mind, but we do it all the time, <laughs> the conclusions are very life-threatening. An example of the opposite response to the hoarding and the me-first attitude to life was brought about by extreme scarcity. A French woman a couple of years ago was giving a talk about having survived in a concentration camp as a teenager. And one of the things that she spoke about was that her mother had given her some squares of chocolate and said, only when you're really desperate. You hold on to this until when you're really desperate. And she held on to them for months and months. And then one day, another inmate had a baby who was dying of starvation. And she gave that baby the chocolate. And she was giving this talk in France. And a woman came up to her afterwards and said, I came from a long way to meet you. I was that baby. So those are the opposite ends of what we can do. There's a poem of Rumi. It describes the experience that caught my eye because of that experience. He says, when you fast for a while, your nature is cleansed. With the pure of heart, you may enter the garden to become light. Fast and burn like a candle. Each morsel is a link that changes you to the ground. So that morsel grounded that baby, gave her life. And the fasting cleaned the nature of the young girl. Every breath we take, every food we take in, every experience we take in can have different possibilities. And speaking of food, Buddha is quoted as saying, if you knew, as I do, the power of giving, you would not let a single meal pass without sharing some of it. So then we were talking about the overabundance and how it creates addictions. An addiction can be like having and hugging a fuzzy teddy bear for comfort to be able to sleep and rest and trust. It can be very seductive, manipulative, and powerful. Slowly they feed on us, growing stronger and fiercer every day, until they are sated and go into hibernation, taking our vitality and learning with their own sleep, stealing time and experiences from our growth. When spring comes, we may or may not reawaken. And addictions can be to our own activities and attachments to our own emotions and thoughts. I had a patient, a young man who was very classically described as depressive. He would also use that word. It was a mirror image of his father. And is it hereditary? Is it lifestyle? Is it what? And 
he started to take an interest in life and activate his energy to relieve his sorrow until he realized that such a course would entail making changes in his lifestyle and situation. He could not formulate the incentive and the narrative that would make him risk losing what he had worthwhile. In this case, fear and possible loss added to what he had already felt he'd lost from a normal life made him angry and even violent, like a cornered bear, which consumed the gentle injured being who longed to emerge from the cave. And so, whether it is physical food, encounters, touches, impressions, memories, and information, all of this phenomena, which is indispensable to the growing body, psyche, and spirit. And it is through this sensation we are fed and feed. That's how we know what's going on. And this link lasts a lifetime. And through the observation of sensation, we can discover what feeds us, what does not, what scarcity does to us and for us, and how we can hinder or allow to be converted that which we take in and that which we give in return. And with this sensation thing, there's a lot of numbness. It's like the child who couldn't play with his food. Many people are very, very numb. There's a numbness and just holding would loosen. Many people who've had traumas and so on lose touch with their body. They can't feel. They can't handle feeling. The body actually stops feeling. And then there's also sensory deprivation, which can be that kind of thing that comes from within. It can also come from without. It can have a devastating effect on the functioning of body systems and on the knowledge that the body develops. Touch and connection with others are the most common sensory deprivations, people who are isolated and do their own thing and don't come too close to me. And lack of movement. Movement is indispensable for sensation to flow and to connect. Lack of sunshine. People who have everything else in the Scandinavian world and who commit suicide because we're like the plants. We don't turn green, but there is a photosynthesis and we do transform sunlight in our bodies. Disconnection from the circadian rhythms. When we don't know day from night and we spend too much time at the computer in the middle of the night and then need to nap in the middle of the day. And lack of sound or sight and the lack of orientation in space and time. All of these things, because that whole system is feeding us. And so if you turn off all of these faucets of reception, you're going to be missing out on something. Because we learn through our bodies. So if we have sensory deprivation, there are things that we're not learning, okay? We take in the world through our bodies, know through our bodies, remember through our bodies. And body includes brain, heart, and gut as a team. Science has proven that there are neurons and neurotransmitters in both the heart and the gut. And emotions are part of the immune system that work in the body. Even tears, you know? Let's use this. Let's be in the body. These systems work through the original innocent feelings, which are desire, relationship, and fear. They are interacting with the environment, constantly interacting with the environment. If you're doing this in isolation, it's not the same. But often the untrained, uncooperative mind registers the imprint made, hijacks the experience, draws conclusions, judges, and acts on its own preferences and dislikes, betting on the ego it is creating. If we hold on to our reactions, our first responders of fear, anger, grief, desire, or expectations, not as useful emotions in the present moment, but as self-definitions for the future and are coming from the past, the body can be put in a state of identification instead of one of awareness, of discernment. Khalil Gibran has something to say about that. He says, but your God self dwells not alone in your being. Much of you is still man, and much of you is not yet man, but a shapeless pygmy that walks asleep in the mist, searching for its own awakening. And some days it's the human that seeks practice and wisdom, and some days it's the pygmy. As John Denver says, some days are diamond and some days are stone, and sometimes the hard times just won't leave you alone. Dr. Savoda writing about this pygmy. Forgetfulness is a devastating disorder. We modern humans have forgotten our roots. We have forgotten our God. And now we are busily trying to forget our morals. 
we feel freer and less constrained the more we forget, unaware that each additional loss of memory distances us from our true identities. We construct for ourselves false personalities derived from the veneer of addictions to our sensory indulgences, defining freedom as unlimited gratification, forgetting that all individuality is conditional. Cut off from the communication with our internal mother, we are severed from our source of compassion and we forget how to empathize with other living creatures. So if we make outrageous demands of the earth, it will lawfully respond with outrageous demands of its own. It will meet violence with violence. If we mess with the water wells and springs, we will eventually have to do without water. The same goes for all our relationships, even the one with ourselves. If we face our shadow with hostility, it will reflect hostility right back to us. If we act with toxicity, we will be paid in the same coin. So this is where the bears really come into the picture. The origins of bears can be our typical, ancestral, cultural, geographical remnants from a forgotten or wished to be forgotten past experience or fabrications for a future. It's like the old saying of there's a tiger at the gate. I know he's there, but I can't relate. Only by relating, I can be free at the gate. We have to relate to these bears, to all that threatens us. Our survival needs create bears out there which threaten us with everything from discomfort to death. We imagine these have to be either fought off or surrendered to, using our power or theirs. We usually do not think of transforming them, using their energy and ours, which is the same energy, universal energy. Other bears are the drama bears the ones we use to entertain ourselves and others. Their egoic acts receive applause or rejection, but are ineffective for dealing with reality. Others are the guard bears, who have either kidnapped us against our will or been hired at high prices bodyguards, and they have taken over the domain. We also succumb to the Stockholm Syndrome, wherein the guard bear is our only strong relationship and is blindly obeyed. A bears abound, always at your side when it comes to picking fights, yielding arrogance and righteousness. The addictive bears always tempting you with a fix-it item, greener grass far away, a new relationship, another glass of wine, playing with fire. There are the bears that prohibit some feelings and do not allow us to be present to what is, but encourage us to express what we think should be or could have been. My particular bear is sadness, a resonance with loss and disconnection in the world. She's a mother bear, who in Mexican legend is known as the Llorona, the ghostly woman who wanders the streets at night mourning. These are the bears we must practice on, learn from, and with, because one day these bears could come bigger and stronger, more extreme. There could be natural disasters, accidents, and wars that can make the discomfort and death real. Real dramas turn up in our lives, poverty, violence, illness. We can be taken prisoner and have to relate to our guards. We can come face to face with the consequences of our personality and habits. And then we may have been fortunate enough to have met the rare beings who offer unconditional love, who offer teaching and modeling, who offer a way out, a path we can aim for and take responsibility for. Thank you, all of you, for that. <laughs> These beings can be as untrained, as organically innocent as the little boy in Maurice Sendak's book, Where the Wild Things Are. Do any of you remember that one? Who intuitively wanted to change his relationship to the bear-like beasts living in the nightmare woods behind his home and sometimes hiding under his bed. He wanted to be in relationship, not in fear, not suffering. He went out with curiosity, play, hugs, and affection to be friends with them to welcome them into his existence with kindness, generosity, and compassion. His imagination had created some very real and influential bears who threatened to consume him, to live with him forever. But his wisdom created a friendship, an acceptance, and even joy in being with something formally threatening. The factor which made the difference was his inherent knowing that he could do it. He didn't buy into the story of impossibility and powerlessness. 
This reminds me of the reading which I loved when I visited when I was in Africa. In Swahili, instead of hello, the call is, I see you. And the response is, and I see you. Can I use that dimension and possibility of that consciously in my encounters? Can I say, I see you and be seen in return? When Maurice Sendak, who wrote that book, Where the Wild Things Are, declared that he had not created a children's book. So is it directed to adults? Is it illustrated for adults? Because it's more an illustration than a text. The story has few words, many images and metaphors. Feed me more than words can. I can see the feelings of the child and the creatures dance across the pages, inviting resonance, inviting sensation, and the felt recognition of the experience of facing a challenge and being able to ride it to learning. Could it be that sharing good company with a bear is the best way to eat it? When I look at the old fairy tales collected by the Brothers Grimm and H.C. Anderson, I see the same wisdom reflected. They speak of bears, ogres, dragons, witches. They can obliterate us, or maybe not. These stories acknowledge that bad things happen. There are nasty step-parents, jealous neighbors, scary things that go bump in the night, others that bite, plus wars and losses. But the teaching is that the child has resources, that acceptance, courage, and creativity can alter his relationship to the situation and make him solve and evolve. Even Arjuna had to do battle as part of his spiritual practice. Modern children's stories have either sanitized reality, painted it pink, or brought in superheroes and fantastic high-tech solutions, which teach children nothing about their own resources. And so for many people, the awful transformational workings and possibilities of life are missing. Many people haven't had that experience of how it works. Instead of transformations with angels at our side, we see bears brought about by survival strategies. Most spiritual teachings have legends and metaphors to describe this state. The Buddhist description of the realms of unconsciousness speak of the realm of power where everything is to be achieved through control, anger, violence, and the attempt to cure the effects of these by wielding even more power. Another realm is that of the hungry ghost, described as pallid beings with huge empty bellies and large mouths, but narrow throats through which no nourishment can pass. They need to occupy a human body to satisfy their insatiable needs. So they cry out from within our heads and hearts, seeking reparation from the past, comfort in the present, and security in the future. Native American lore describes Wendigo, a larger-than-life monster person who divorces people, nature, and the earth, not only from need, but also from greed. Cannibalistic in nature, it appears in times of scarcity and also in times of abundance, thinking only of itself. It can appear in many disguises, in collective personalities, personal relationships, and as individual eyes within one. So these bears, these demons have been known for centuries and in all the contexts and have to be worked with. And fear and loss could be fueled agents for transformation. They activate each other. They're like Siamese twins joined at the head, heart, and the hip. They move together, moving in thought, emotion, and action. But they're anchored in place. For them to be agents of transformation, they have to face in the opposite direction, aiming attention at the other end of the feeling spectrum where courage and gain beckon. We can never be rid of fear. It is a necessary messenger in life. But we can get rid of cowardice and take open-minded, open-hearted, and open-handed towards the other end of the spectrum, like the little boy and where the wild things are. We have to go through the darkness to get to the light, through the mud to get to the sky, or we need to trust in creation. Leonard Cohen sings, dance me through the panic till I'm gathered safely in. The possibility now the promise is described in this poem of Rumi's, dedicated to the creator, Purusha, but reflecting us as Prakriti. Because you are the cure hidden in the pain. Concealed in anger and betrayal is your compassion and loyalty. You are not only in heaven. I see your footprints everywhere. Honor. And so then I find advice from Lilozowick. There is no more inherent value to suffering than to beauty. 
if we make use of suffering, then it has value to the body. It's the same thing with beauty in all its forms, living and not living. For instance, just having a child does not mean that we learn anything at all. We have to make use of the situation. If not, they don't. And suffering arises in the body, in the mind, in the world. When we interact with suffering, whether we make it useful or not, depends on the strength of our practice. Okay, so when we interact with suffering, whether we make it useful or not, depends on the strength of our practice. And so that suffering can be from all the emotions and all the experiences, and they all exist, not as opposites, but a dynamic spectrum of possibility, equally accessible, one energy with different expressions, beauty and suffering, fear and courage, youth and age, giving and receiving, hate and love, fasting and feasting, solitude and company, rage and peace, confusion and clarity, like and dislike, creation and destruction, longing and having, gratitude and greed, isolation or interaction, hyperactivity or numbness, sorrow and joy. And finding our balance, finding our place on this range of possibility, adjusting to inner and outer pressures, it's not a static position. The balance is not static. Balance is constant movement. You try and balance on one foot and you're constantly adjusting, 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 adjusting. Balance is not a static thing. It's moving. And speaking of those possibilities, Khalil Gibran says, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter arises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper the sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? Is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart. And you shall find that it is not only that which has given you sorrow, it has given you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth, you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come. And when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must be your joy or your sorrow rise and fall. And we tend to put them on the scale not as the same thing like the joy and sorrow, as Gibran says, but with binary opposites, it's each end, where one is good and the other bad, with hopefully a place of harmony achievable somewhere near the middle. We also tend to divide emotional states in positive and negative, depending on whether they are pleasurable and joyful or unpleasant and painful. The Dalai Lama gives a much more complete and rich explanation. He says there are afflictive mental states which undermine our long-term well-being and that of others by creating inner turmoil, undermining self-control, and depriving us of mental freedom. Greed, hatred, and malice are always destructive. Attachment, anger, or fear are dependent on circumstances. Anger can save lives, as can fear. They can strengthen our bodies, focus our minds, and provide energy. Attachment serves a biological and an evolutionary imperative creating relationships and bonds. But if it becomes dependence or control, it is destructive. Some of the afflictive emotions have a dual aspect of non-afflictive, which even if painful can be empowering. Grief and loss are not pleasant, but can inform us about living and growing. Non-afflictive emotions like desire and achievement, while stimulating, can become obsession and pride detrimental to genuine contentment and mental stability. Even compassion, if used for arrogance, is destructive. But adversity gives us an opportunity to practice compassion. Competitives can be creative until it is used to destroy others. Shame can lead to remorse and seeking forgiveness. 
not to hiding our heads in the sun. Doubt can make us explore possibilities but should not paralyze us. In the words of C.C. Chang, a Gen teacher, the greater the doubt, the greater the awakening. The smaller the doubt, the smaller the awakening. No doubt, no awakening. These are all things to be seen and looked at, including pain. Pain in all its facets is the gift nobody wants. It's a badly wrapped gift package with no options for return to sender. But it is a mine of information and the pain will relax when it is seen and its message welcome. I'll go back to the Swahili. I see you. Pain is necessary. Suffering is optional. When I see that other people's pain is as large or as important as my own, there is no longer my pain nor a me. There is only pain. Another interesting aspect of the body emotion connection is that we all have particularly incarnated moods or tendencies that make us apt to produce and or attract certain emotions. This is also to see what our tendencies are. And Ayurvedic studies describe these very well in the doshas, which are the physiological elements or constitutions. So the body and the emotions are linked. These constitutions are vata, pitta, and kapha, which are air, fire, and water, and are expressed in every body through forms, systems, and energy. They interact and balance the body, so it's important to have them all balanced. It is common for one element to be stronger than others in different individuals, although there are all changes in time due to circumstances, environment, diet, and lifestyle. And to understand the emotional tendencies, imagine the same storm raging around the three constitutions. Vata, which is there, will be strongly affected by the wind, becoming anxious, unstable, fearful, forgetful. Pita, which is fire, will resonate with the thunder and lightning, becoming aggressive, impetuous, excited. Katha, which is water and earth, will flow every which way and can be in danger of drowning or being trapped in quicksand. And all of these reactions can be put to good use as well if the intention is there. Vata can release the unneeded. Pita can be courage and warmth. Kapha can be stability and transit. The trick here is the intention. When emotions become exaggerated, our sense of reality becomes distorted. Our inner and outer perceptions are askew. Our personal story becomes superimposed on our history. The distinction of time between past, present, and future is invalidated. We cannot visualize long-term consequences. We become reactive, not responsive, nor responsible. As Dr. Roberts Svoboda has said, if you don't live with reality, reality will come and live with you and knock you on your ass every time. And what's interesting here is that shock of the butt hitting the floor can be a catalyzer for change. Tension opens the door to possibility. Challenges wake you up, activate perception. Experience is the best teacher. The price is high, but the explanation is good. So accept, welcome, and be grateful for what comes to you. Use it and stay on your feet. According to Carl Jung, our experiences send emotions as messengers, like mail addressed to us. It behooves us to pay attention to that mail, to not leave bills unpaid, invitations unacknowledged, obituaries not mourned, and fake news not discriminated from the relevant. I quote another comment of his. It is not that something different is seen, but that one sees differently. It is though the spatial act of seeing were changed by a new dimension. But we certainly don't have to hold on to all the messages, file them away for retelling their story to all and sundry, exhibiting them, feeding the little ones so they grow big and strong, or brandishing our swords against the bigger ones until they come alive and fight back. All of these messages have to be used and disposed of, just like when we eat food. Use it, let it go. Sigmund Freud spoke of suffering from memories. Dr. Elvin Semred said, the greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. And he added that we must experience, acknowledge, and bear the reality of life with all its pleasures and heartbreak. Rudy, the teacher Rudy, was asked about the why of human experience, the pain, the confusion, the euphoria, etc. And he answered, all of it is necessary as food, fuel for your practice and spiritual life. 
use it. Choices, practice, may it be of benefit to you. Rumi, I've been enjoying the poems of Rumi. He says, peaceful is the one who's not concerned with having more or less. Unbound by name and fame, he is free from sorrow, from the world, and mostly from himself. We create stories, dramas about ourselves and each other in which metaphorical bears that threaten to eat us abound, fooled by experiences and the circumstances, by our reactivity and defenses, by our expectations and assumptions, and by the way we attempt to protect ourselves from the impermanence and from the unknown. What drags us down and makes us fool through the bears of war, violence, racism, and ecological destruction is the misuse of the emotions, the distortion of aims, and the focus of me, myself, and I, instead of a consideration of we, wherein all beings have the same desire for life and happiness and the same rights. Until we can learn to feed that we, we will be the victims of our own illusions, opinions, conclusions, and projections and the victims of whatever stories others use to define us. Our stories and theirs only serve to create divisions between us. So here, beginning with the aims, the intentions, apart from the misuse of emotions, they can have a real important use, but we can misuse them. And the distortion of aims, when the aim is me, me, myself, and I, instead of a consideration of we, that original relationship that the newborn baby creates. That's the foundation of our existence. And for that, Lee suggested, transform your suffering into compassion, which is also the Buddhist way. And here I have another example, a Vietnamese woman, Kim Phuc Phan Thi. You may remember the iconic photograph when around the world she ran at the age of seven alone, surrounded by strangers, unprotected, underfed, and naked down a dirt road, escaping a war zone. It was a photograph in black and white that went worldwide. She reached safety, and for some years she was very angry and exposed by a news reporter in this way. Her emotions went into that. The whole world saw me naked. She was very indignant. And then she went through a huge range of emotions and thoughts in regard to her experience before integrating it. And today she has transformed the childhood emotions into love, compassion, and action. She now has a foundation for the assistance of war victims and refugees. It's active in the Ukraine at the time. Would Nelson Mandela be who he is if he had not consumed his anger at the guards who abused him in so many years of jail and hard labor and used the energy, as Lee suggested? Transform your suffering into compassion. It's not Han says, awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. That is what we're aiming for. Creation has given us the capacities for active transformations, the tools, awareness, breathing, eating, growing, evolving, sensation, proprioception, movement, digestion, thinking, memory, which is cellular as well as abstract. The body remembers things. If you have an experience when you have trouble breathing, it will leave an imprint in the body and that experience will come back and be relived. We have regeneration, resilience, energy, emotions. Emotion means energy in motion. So that motion is nothing but energy and it passes through imagination, resilience, courage, love, basic goodness, strength, intrinsic dignity and nobility, creativity, gratitude, curiosity, and a sense of honor and worship. We also have intuition to debunk, external imposed knowledge, discernment to question judgment, feeling to expose and depose emotions, the capacity to communicate, and the capacity to formulate and follow a name. Our toolbox is pretty good. And information whether physical or energetic, by its very nature, informs. That's what the word is. It informs. If it meets with obstacles, buffers, resistance, anger, an armored ego structure that wants what it wants, when it wants, and how it wants it, it can be denatured, twisted, soured, bent out of shape, and deformed. If it is met by acceptance, love, silence, and trust, it can then transform. So it's a question of dealing with it from the habit body. This is what I do. This is what I see that I do followed by the practice body, 
And finally, within the alchemical body, and for these terms, I thank Tom Lennon. He says, this human being is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Treat each guest honorably. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And speaking of tools, we have patience, advice from Rainer Maria Rilke in Letters to a Young Poet. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. In this next poem of Rumi's, he questions the divine about his human capacities. He says, my heart is so small, it's almost invisible. How can you place such big sorrows in it? Look, he answered, your eyes are even smaller, yet they behold the world. For me, the word behold has magic. It is an invitation to be, for the being to hold what is perceived. It is not to become, not to be enmeshed, but to be still, to be vast, to be able to hold without grasping or recoil. Another one of the tools that we have is courage. And Rollo May speaks and writes of the courage to create. He explains that we can only create, read, transform, because of limitations. If everything were perfect, we would have no need to work, to learn, to evolve, to create, to allow ourselves to be transformed. But it takes courage to create the space for it. We do not accomplish transformation. We allow ourselves to align with it, to be overtaken by it, to let creation have its way with us. The timing is not up to us. Courage is. And it reminds me of the organic blueprint for transformation and live full out in just this 365. Where towards the end he says, live full out according to what life gives freely, its own largesse and wisdom unniggled by our urging demands, ostensible prayers, whining, and needling. Just live full out through meeting life openly, with a willingness to be moved up, down, or sideways, to be pierced to the core. Life will do the preparatory work. Life will make the initial gestures and needs you to pick up from where the groundwork leaves off and take it to the next and all the next levels right up to the level that only grace can define and realize. So relax, be patient, and be ready to leap when life says jump. Life will do the preparatory work. We have the blueprint for transformation. We just have to move into it. We are all embedded in the web of life, all beings in relationship, even within ourselves. We receive support and care on one hand and give it with the other, or not. The give and take does not have to be at the same level. We may receive nothing but pluses and give out minuses, or receive minuses and give up pluses. When I have these experiences, I paraphrase a prayer to the divine. I say, forgive me, bless me, let me see, for I know not what I do. Forgive them, bless them, let them see, for they know not what they do. Forgive us, bless us, let us see, for we know not what we do. And to go on with that relationship thing, we seek and manifest memories, misapprehensions and stories, often beginning with the words, I am. Followed by a qualifier, nervous, angry, happy. The practice is to honor the two words, I am, standing alone, as reference to the being which we are placed on earth to evolve and feed creation. Do not identify or be defined by the qualifiers, the emotions and sensations which are referred to as arising or subsiding. Fear is arising, my trembling is subsiding. Yet to recognize in the logic and acknowledge that there is always awareness, the witness who senses the waves arise and subside, 
and a key phrase from Galib Gibran, for in truth it is life that gives unto life, while you, who deem yourself a giver, are but a witness. And I read an interview with Prentice Hemphill, who was a therapist, and he asked a very key question. He says, do I internalize the message from the environment about who I am, or am I awake to who I am? He says that humans make a narrative based on power to determine who is worthy and who is not. For those belonging to the historical narrative of power, it's a very comfortable story, although it is distorted in temporary way. But T takes a more challenging path to awake, wherein power arises not from the story of differences of categories, but from the source. The source being an expansive, universal God who created him, you, me, us. And therefore, we belong here, connected, sensitive, and present. We take refuge in that source, and our power comes from that source. He adds, in all conditions, keep the inner light alive and shine. Joseph Campbell said that the archetype of every human being is to become the hero of his own story. My aim is to become responsible for my own actions. Rumi says, be thirsty heart, seek forever without a rest. Let this soundless longing hidden deep inside you be the source of every word you say. Also from an author unknown to me, who I am is the creator's gift to me. What I do with my life is my gift to the creator. Rabbi Danya Rutenberg says our transformation makes us more useful for world transformation. Good aim. For many spiritual practitioners, the aim of eating bears and of being useful for world transformation is to be in relationship to others and to work towards the end of suffering for all. Witness the Bodhisattva vow and the Dalai Lama who refuses to allow people to speak badly of the Chinese who exiled him and many others from Tibet. For others like myself, uh, world transformation aim is to be in relationship with Mother Nature, the mother from whom we spring as unique manifestations. Any insult, be it of omission or commission to her, is an insult to all living creatures and to creation itself. We must care for her, heal her. And Robert Svoboda says, if we hope to continue to live on this planet, we must reverse the damage we have inflicted on ourselves and on our environment. The message of the Vedas is that each of us must find our own path to a life lived to the fullest. For only by making the most of ourselves can we repay nature the debt we owe her for giving us life. I do want to read something from Khaled Gibran. Am I a harp that the hand of the mighty may touch me, or a flute that his breath may flow through me? If this is my day of harvest, in what fields have I sowed the seed, and in what unremembered season? If this be the hour in which I lift up my lantern, it is not my flame that shall burn very in. Empty and dark I shall raise my lantern, and the guardian of the night shall fill it with oil, and he shall light it also. Back to being part of this amazing system. Let's open for questions or comments. Making friends with the bears, I think, is a very significant thing to do as a part of of transformational path, and yet not forget that as friendly as we get with them, they're still dangerous animals. You said, and this may be taken out of context, overabundance creates addiction. And I made a note to myself that an overabundance of fear in my life created addictions. And the only way to deal with the fear of having no courage, et cetera, as a young child, was uh, ultimately to find ways to protect myself emotionally by whatever I told myself. Ultimately, it turned into alcohol, drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. However, what's remarkable and part of the miracle of life to me is that there's people in groups that collectively have experienced this and gather to work with the bear, to welcome the bear, to own it, to speak to it, speak of it. 
and speak honestly and authentically about it. That fuels a different kind of fire, I found. One that's a, a correcting mechanism, kind of like that metaphor of the blacksmith who puts the sword in the fire over and over again. I welcome the opening for a conversation about owning the things, the qualities of life that seem so oppressive. And one person at a time then takes a stand. And then one person at a time not only reflects something uh, collective, it's possible that one person at a time finds a group to be with. And many of your quotes are quite useful. And you remind me of the quote that hangs in my head right now all the time is, alone you can do it, but you cannot do it alone. In a way, it sounds very spacious, but it's also pretty demanding to walk Mm -hmm. through life that way. Yeah, well, relationship is that first imprint that we have when we're born. And it's a huge tool. You can't do it alone. You can do for others and they can do for you as the mother and baby do for each other. It's an indispensable part of how we transform anything. When you're talking about the fear, it's never going to go away. I think fear of survival should not go away, really, because that's what monitors me for danger in the environment. It's the fear that I'm working on with self-observation is the story, the fear that I've attached to, oh, they won't like me, or I'm going to fail at this thing. It's not really a matter of my survival. It's my mind fears. For me, the fear of survival or the fear of dying translates it into, is it actually fear of living? How can I live now that I am here and not be afraid of of that, putting myself out there? And for me, it's hugely important, the gratitude. It's making friends with the bears and also having a gratitude. My last inspiration here is from Leonard Cohen, where he says, I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. But even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. 